0: Tune in weekly and listen to the Collateral Damage Podcast, where Michael Wilson and Maureen Kavanaugh host a variety of special guests to discuss topics and available services that will help you learn about the impact that substance use has on our lives, our families, and on our communities nationwide. Episodes and listening information can be found at www.cdpodcast.com. You can also search for Collateral Damage Podcast on your favorite listening platforms, or watch previous and future episodes on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe and share. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Collateral Damage. My name is Mike Wilson. I'm here with my co-host, Maureen Cavanaugh. How are you doing, Maureen?
1: I'm good, Mike. How are you?
0: Doing fantastic. And we have a I'm special, excited. I am, as well. <laughs> yeah, we have a special guest today, Ben Westoff Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. And so, Ben, you are the author of multiple, uh, multiple books out there, but you are the author of Fentanyl, Inc., um, which is the book that I most recently heard you talking about. And uh, my understanding is this book uh, came with a lot of research, uh, uh, you know, both uh, ground research, uh, traveling around as a journalist, trying to get information uh, as well as research into uh, the fentanyl industry and how it was started and what it's doing to our country. And um, I'm just curious to hear maybe uh, uh, kind of how, how it started, why you decided to to write a book like that. Uh, what led you down that path in the first place?
2: Well, this is the first book about fentanyl and I had a friend who died from fentanyl in 2010. Mm-hmm. Back before anybody had really even heard of the drug. Yeah. And nowadays it's mostly being killed. People are mostly being killed by illicit fentanyl that is made in China. Mm-hmm. My friend though was killed by fentanyl patches. Right. And he had more than one on at the same time as he was drinking. And yeah. um, he kind of fell asleep face down on his pillow and suffocated. And it's awful. And when you talk about the opioid crisis, you know, we hear so much about it and fentanyl is the third wave. So prescription pills like Oxycontin Mm -hmm. were the first wave. And then heroin was the second wave. And now as a lot of your listeners probably know, it's really hard to find pure heroin in most parts of the U S it's all being cut with fentanyl. And so I kept hearing about fentanyl and, wanted to know more, and so my book is a deep dive into the history about the the Belgian chemist who created it, about how it sort of crossed over from the hospital pharmaceutical realm into the realm of recreational use and abuse, mm-hmm. and I also infiltrated a pair of Chinese drug operations. I went to china and went inside a fentanyl lab. So I'm sure we'll talk about that.
0: Yes. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> we're definitely going to talk about
2: that. <laughs> that's
0: an interesting story there. I mean, you, you brought up uh, fentanyl being around, you know, before and I'm an addict in recovery and op- an opiate addict. And so, you know, back uh, when, when I was using, I mean, even early mid two thousands um, you know, we were, we were getting the patches and the lollipops and all the different ways that, that fentanyl was prescribed back then. And abusing them in the background. I mean, even uh, you know, trading them for other drugs and eating them, cutting the patches open and, and eating them, um, or just chewing on them like gum. Uh, and it was it was just as dangerous then. Um, but like you said, with the illicit substances, I mean, now my understanding is that there's a good chance that fentanyl is in most of the things that you're using, any powder form of you know either repressed Xanax um, or cocaine and or, or opiates, uh, heroin uh it's being mixed in with all that stuff now as a uh, a filler a cheaper filler to add to the effect of the substance or to uh um uh to create more of it so they can make more money in the sale
2: yeah it's that's the sad truth is that the drug landscape looks nothing like it did when we were young mm-hmm. and you know they always told us that any drug could kill us but now it's pretty much true yeah, in real. terms of any pill or any powder could have fentanyl in it and fentanyl is you know 50 times stronger than heroin 100 times Mm -hmm. stronger than morphine and it's the drug that most people don't ask for by name right instead like you said it's cut into heroin but but increasingly yeah into cocaine Mm -hmm. into meth and Mm -hmm. into prescription pills right um prince died when he thought he was taking a prescription opioid pill that was bought off the black market that was actually cut with fentanyl and Tom Petty, as well as the rapper Mac Miller, Mm -hmm. both died that same way.
0: Yeah. I think uh, I heard you tell a story about uh, how Tom Petty uh, stepped outside of a concert to uh, uh, looking for painkiller, right?
2: Yeah. He had a long history of uh, addiction problems with opiates and opioids. And what I was told was that he injured himself at a concert and was looking for pain relief and he Mm -hmm. asked someone just on the street for some for pain pills and it turns out that they were cut with fentanyl so that's awful
0: i mean you know in my in my industry so i work in the addiction industry we work with families of addicts and alcoholics and you know everyone from teenagers right up and through adults and you know maureen you and i spoke about this the other day that had a you know an influx of phone calls about 15 year old kids and xanax You know, and, the you know, like you said before, the the substance abuse landscape has changed so drastically that, you know, back when when I was a kid, the odds are that you were buying Xanax and you were buying it from somebody's prescription bottle, you know, a family member or somebody else. And you were getting Xanax, you were getting pharmaceutical grade Xanax. And now it's, you know, you've got 15 year olds trying to buy it the same way, but the landscape has changed and the people that are selling the Xanax.
2: Yeah, well, like a
0: 50 50 chance of getting repressed fentanyl.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so people buy a a lot of these illicit drugs are made in China and processed in Mexico, but there's actually a lot of American drug dealers who buy these pill pressing machines from China Yeah, and they're capable of making, you know, tens, you know, thousands of pills an hour Mm -hmm. and they can be pressed to look pretty much exactly like a, a Xanax or a Vicodin or a Oxycontin or whatever. And it's almost impossible to
1: tell the difference.
0: That's terrifying.
1: And they I mean, have no no sense of how much to put in that would is going to kill somebody or not going to kill somebody because right. they're not chemists they're you know drug dealers with a pill press
2: yeah. yeah exactly, and there's all sorts of hot spots, so it's from the same batch you could get some pills that are pretty much benign, but other pills from the same batch that you know kill mm-hmm. people
0: well when i i mean ecstasy was really big when I was in my uh mid twenties and it still is now with Molly, and I know that also has a a fairly odd mix of substances in it, but they used to call them disco biscuits when I was uh, younger. And they uh. were, they were, they were repressed. And and you had a chance if you bought ecstasy. Some of it might be ecstasy. The other might be a pressed combination of opiates, heroin, crystal meth, and some aspirin or some cocaine. And it was just a, a disco biscuit. It had whatever they wanted to put in it. And some would be good. Some would be strong so on and so forth.
2: Yeah, or uh, amphetamines. And that's how I originally came onto this story was I initially was going to write about ecstasy Mm -hmm. and the electronic dance music scene. I was the LA Weekly Music Editor. Yep. And I was writing a story about how so many people were dying at raves because back in the day, you know, I'm sure when you, you know, were on the scene, people took ecstasy, but you didn't hear as much about these deaths. Right.
0: But one or two, one or two every now and then it wasn't extremely common.
2: But in the early part of this decade, it got to be so that every single rave you heard about someone dying, if not two or three people. And so it turns out that there was almost no pure MDMA at all. in these ecstasy, so-called ecstasy or molly pills, and they were all adulterated with these new drugs. Mm -hmm. And it turned out all of these new drugs were synthetic. They were all made in a lab and they were all sourced from China. Wow. And so that's how I kinda of went down the rabbit hole rabbit hole to learn what these new drugs were. And that's how I first heard about fentanyl, which is the most dangerous of them all. Yeah.
0: So what what made you decide? I mean, you spoke about this earlier and I'm I'm curious and i I know our listeners are too to hear a little bit about this story, but I mean, as a an I mean, you must be an investigative journalist to 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 feel like you could take this trip, but what made you decide that you wanted to go to China and try to infiltrate this, this massive system out there of fentanyl production.
2: To really understand the story of fentanyl, you have to go to China. It was my thinking because yeah. it's all, it's all made there and it was all being sold really flagrantly. Yeah, You could just Google buy fentanyl in China and there would be hundreds of different companies that would come up on the search engine. And so I just began emailing salespeople at these companies because they had their email addresses right there on the website. And I made a fake email address. I said I was a drug dealer and I asked if I could (laughs) visit their operation if I came to China and they said yes. And so, um, so then I just, I went in early 2018. I, uh, went to two places. One was, uh, traditional lab in outside of Shanghai. Mm-hmm. And I met the, the owner of the lab at the train station and he spent most of the day, the first part of the day kind of sizing me up. And I told him this story that I wasn't actually a drug dealer. It was my friend who was a drug dealer <laughs> yeah. and I just happened to be in China. And if I was able to see his lab and it passed muster with our quality control standards, Mm -hmm. and my friend would be willing to make big big buys from this guy on a regular basis and so finally he let me go you know decided to take me there he called his driver we drove way out to the middle of nowhere
0: must have been terrifying Uh, i didn't
2: have like (laughs) gps functioning you can't use your own cell phone in china oh wow so you have to rent one basically from the government. So it was not I didn't have good GPS or anything, and uh, we saw the lab, and it it wasn't some sort of underground bunker. It was basically in a kind of suburban office park. Okay. There was a, a fountain out front, and it, it looked like it could have been any sort of legitimate business inside of there. And there were um, this industrial-sized glassware, you know made me think of the show breaking bad <laughs> and, um, you know, very strong chemical smell. Yeah. Uh, and these drugs were just piled high. They, they were making two main things. They were making, uh, uh, fentanyl analogs, which are basically okay. different types of fentanyl where the chemical structure has just been slightly tweaked. Mm-hmm. And there some of them, you know, they're just as potent as fentanyl. Sometimes they're a lot more potent than fentanyl. And the other thing they were making in this lab was uh, synthetic cannabinoids, which oh, wow. there's may know of, like K2 and Spice. Yeah. Those are um, two examples. They're, and they're that's sp-
0: just a chemical, right, that they spray onto another substance, like a potpourri or a, a, a any other leafy product or something like that?
2: Yeah, exactly, like dried sage, any dried okay. plant matter. And yeah. it's intended, you know, it can be smoked like marijuana. You could smoke it out of a, a joint or a pipe. But it's it really has nothing in common with marijuana. Okay. Um it's it's not a relaxing drug. It like makes your heart race. It's, wow. it's it's people overdose and die in it a lot, but it's it's very popular because it can't be detected by most drug tests. Oh yeah. yeah so Yeah, they keep changing the
0: chemical. Like we have we actually can test for K was K two? No. Yeah, well, but the thing the is K two
2: it doesn't even mean one thing. You know what I mean? It's like that doesn't refer to a specific chemical. So something that's sold as K2 one week might have a completely different chemical the next time it's sold. Right. There's Yeah. So there's literally, you're right. They keep changing it. There's hundreds and hundreds of them. And um, people smoke them when they have drug tests most often. So yeah. so this lab specialized in these fentanyl analogs and the synthetic cannabinoids. And they were making them in huge quantities. And, you know, I, I had my phone recording secretly in my breast <laughs> pocket and I just, you know, I kind of described what I saw all around me. Yeah. And um, there, the language barrier was enough that they didn't wonder why this crazy person was <laughs> like, speaking out loud into the air for no reason. Yeah. And, um,
0: like, look at this big pile of orange powder over here.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly the kind of stuff yeah. I was saying. And oh, uh,
1: That must have been terrifying, though, because you really, I mean, I know it looked like a normal office park, but, you know, they're breaking their own law, too, I would assume. Well, that's the thing about this I'm company. Afraid, a lot I'm afraid of to like ask. It. Yeah. Well, they actually <laughs> specialized in
2: chemicals that were legal in China. And so that's how they can operate so so flagrantly is um, all of these chemicals were banned in the U.S. and mm-hmm. other Western countries. But they're still legal in China. And so this company specialized in this sort of narrow window when a a new designer drug or a novel psychoactive substance, as they're called, like all these ones I've been describing, when they're popularized on the Internet, but they're still legal in China. so.
1: So they're legal in China, but are people in China using them or they're just really exporting them?
2: Yeah, it's pretty much just for export. Uh, uh-huh. Fentanyl is not a big drug of abuse in China at all. And so that's why a lot of people have accused China of not cracking down on this industry yeah. because they say China doesn't care as much because it's not affecting Chinese citizens.
0: Right. Well, I mean, it's very possible. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it's not, it's just a, uh, it's just money for them. Right.
2: Yeah. Well, it's since become uh part of Trump's trade war. And right. so, so, in more recently, China has banned all of these different types of fentanyl analogs, and Trump has said if they don't stop the export to the U.S., that he's going to increase different trade duties and tariffs and things like that on other on other products. So, right. it's it's finally getting some international attention, but it doesn't seem like it's going to be enough to slow the the crisis here anytime too soon. Mm-hmm. No.
0: And so, were you? Uh, I mean, were you nervous? Were you scared? I mean, I imagine that if you got caught, or if they found out that you were who you were instead of who you said you were, that they might have, uh, they might have challenged that, right?
2: Yeah, I was definitely nervous. I, I was nervous when I I got in the car with this guy, and he had this big driver, this big kind of muscle, beefy dude who didn't speak English, and um, I thought, you know, if they find out I'm a journalist, this is the guy who's gonna break my kneecaps or whatever but but to be honest i was more afraid about the chinese government because i i wasn't there on an official journalist visa i was there on a tourist visa because i knew they wouldn't let me do what i wanted to do if i went on a journalist visa so i could have been thrown in jail um for that for that alone so
0: wow well i mean i gotta say just that like i said just just taking that risk in itself was very courageous. I mean, to, to get the story and to get the inside details, that's huge.
2: Right. Yeah. Um, the other thing that, you know, that made me a little less afraid was these aren't like the Colombian cartels or the Mexican cartels. They're not violent. These are, these are business people, these Mm -hmm. people running these Chinese labs. They, like I said, they want to play by the letter of the law and they want to make money. They don't want to ruffle feathers. And Mm -hmm. so, there's also really strict gun control in China, so there's not a lot of guns there. So, hmm. you know, I took a little bit of comfort in that.
0: Yeah, yeah, still terrifying, but yes.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: and so, uh, so this information that you brought back, I mean, you you had the opportunity, obviously, to put it into a book and to get it, get this information out there. But um, you use this information uh, to testify as well, at a congressional hearing, right? And what was the what was the motivation behind that? Were you asked? Were you Pushed into it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I was asked. There's been a lot of interest from the government about the findings in my book, Fentanyl Inc., because not only did I sort of uncover what's happening in this the the industry that's exporting this fentanyl, but the Chinese government itself is largely complicit in promoting this industry. So I found out that companies who export fentanyl actually get big tax breaks. Oh, wow. They're known oh as uh, value-added tax breaks. And they they also receive all sorts of subsidies from the government. Wow. Um, these are, they're known as, they're like biotech companies, basically. And most of them make other drugs besides, you know, dangerous drugs like fentanyl. They also make legitimate drugs, mm-hmm. legitimate chemicals and pharmaceuticals. And so the government rewards them with these uh, big incentives, um, often to, for like, training and development for, you know, land subsidies on rent. They're in, they're in these like business development parks Mm -hmm. and the government either doesn't know or doesn't care that they're producing all these, these fentanyl products on the side. And so I spoke with, um, with a commission, uh, on Capitol Hill, and I've since consulted with, you know, leaders from the the U.S. House and Senate and the State Department, and everyone is sort of shocked that China is so brazenly encouraging this industry, and they want to know what can be done to stop it.
0: Well, I mean, uh, the the conspiracy theorist in me thinks about pharmaceutical warfare, you know, chemical warfare, just kind of injecting this product into the United States. We are the number one consumer for drugs in the world. I mean, when people make drugs in other countries, like, boy, Americans are gonna love this, you know? And so it's not a surprise that another country would do that. I don't know if it's malicious or if it's intentional, but it, it sounds like it might be.
2: Yeah, a lot of people describe this as a reverse opium war, yeah. And so, in the early 19th century, uh, China fought a pair of opium wars with England, who was supplying the country with these huge quantities of opium, and Chinese citizens were getting addicted at mm-hmm. huge rates. And so, China went to war to stop them, and they ended up losing. And the spoils of of that um, defeat were the Hong Kong was given to England. Mm-hmm. So, so now people call this a reverse opium war because now it's China who's supplying an opioid to the West. Yeah. And they're, the conspiracy theorists have also been fueled by these, there's like a U.S. army white paper that quotes these Chinese generals talking about, um, different forms, like you were saying of warfare. And one of them they discuss is through drugs warfare. Yeah, And so, you know, Destabilize a a country, you can
0: destabilize a country with drugs like this. You know, you can change the focus of what a country's government will pay attention to and where they'll put their money. And, you know, I mean, it's it's devastating.
2: Yeah, it absolutely is. And I don't think it started out this way. I think the Chinese government was legitimately trying to develop its chemical exports to grow its economy. Yeah. And that's the basis for these um, all these different subsidies. But now it's gotten to the point where everybody knows what's going on. The U.S. Mm -hmm. is in the midst of this horrible opioid crisis. And so Mm -hmm. that's when it begins to really make you wonder.
0: Well, it's not. I mean, the opioid crisis, of course, is definitely the thing that people are are talking about and paying attention to because it's taking lives. But there's also this this drive to find other substances too. the chemicals, you know, I mean, uh, kratom. Kratom's come around real big now. Um, you know, a, there was a fight recently, maybe last year, to to criminalize it, and it, it I guess they lost because it's not a, it's not illegal now. Uh, they were trying to make it a scheduled drug, and now it's it's just still not. People are out there using that. Um, there's other substances. I know up in uh, up in Maine, up in Lewiston, um, they had a uh, a lot of Somalians came up there quite a few years ago, and they brought with them a root. Um, Cat cat root?
2: Yeah, it? yeah. It's, um, it's, it's a class of drug known as um, cathinone. Yep. And um, another one of these novel psychoactive substances, these new types of designer drugs, are all these synthetic cathinones. Yeah. So they're intended to uh, replicate the effect of the natural cat plant, and yep. they're most famous as bath salts.
0: Okay.
1: Okay. And
2: so. Yeah, a lot of people were talking about those, especially a few years ago, and it's a misnomer. These are these are little packets that are labeled as bath salts or potpourri or incense. And on the back, they say not intended for human consumption. Right. And that's intended to get around the law. But, you know, they're, of course, they're not really salts for your bath or yep. or incense or whatever. They're these um, these chemicals. Um, in this case, usually synthetic cathinones that are sprayed onto plant matter. Okay. And, you know, some it's, it's a wide range. Some of these synthetic cathinones are totally safe. Uh, some will make you lose your head. But, but the biggest problem is that nobody knows the proper dosage.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So you can get one packet that has just a tiny trace amounts of the chemical and another that has huge quantities. And, you know, it's the same problem with fentanyl. Right, and that's the the problem with these new drugs that I talk about in my book, that you keep going back to over and over, which is um, the old saying in toxicology: the dose makes the poison, uh-huh. not the drug itself. It's yeah. the fact that no one knows how much to be taking.
0: Yeah.
1: So, Ben, it, there must. I mean, I think people will read this book and they will be like shocked, like things are coming at you, like you can't believe half of the stuff in the book. It's unfortunately, it's true, but you can't believe that this stuff is going on. Was there anything when you were doing the research for the book or putting the book together that you thought, I can't believe this, like something that really surprised or shocked you?
2: Yeah, um, I think what is is really strange is that almost all of these new drugs, including fentanyl, were all created in legitimate labs by medical scientists who were hoping to make drugs to benefit humanity. Mm. And so I was, when I heard about new drugs, I always thought it was some evil mad scientist in a laboratory like cooking up drugs to poison people, but it's not like that at all. Uh, What happened was a lot of these drugs that are just becoming popular now were created decades ago Mm-hmm. and they were made by university scientists who were trying to create new medicine to patent and hopefully sell and so in a lot of these cases they they created the drug they published a paper about it but then nothing ever happened and those papers just kind of sat on dusty university shelves but in the in the internet age all of these papers started to be put online and so Now anyone with an internet connection could, could browse through the the archives and find out this whole like vast treasure trove of, of drug formulas, basically like recipes to make all these new drugs. And so it's, it's only been in the last two decades that these drugs are all coming to life now. And in some cases killing thousands of people. For, for, with a drug that only existed on paper, you know, until not that mm-hmm. long ago. Wow. Well,
0: ecstasy, uh, MDMA was. Uh, I remember watching something that back in maybe the 60s or 70s that it was used as a, a, in marriage therapy uh, to to uh-huh. kind of reinitiate uh-huh. the the intimacy of uh, of marriage uh, and b- before it was made a scheduled drug. You know, it had a therapeutic value. There was intention behind it. Uh, You know, the same could be said for uh, some other substances. You know, I know that was it uh, mushrooms now, uh, psilocybin, they're using therapeutically for end of life. Uh, You know, for some folks that are facing the end of life scenario, they're micro dosing psilocybin to help people get comfortable with the possibility of death. You know, they, they do have some medicinal purpose if they're used, like you said, the dose makes the poison. If it's used correctly by the right people, it might have a purpose.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, luckily, there's been somewhat of a sea change. And a lot of these, uh, especially psychedelics, are being given permission to do testing with them. And so um, LSD is another one. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of testing to help people stop smoking, you know, really? huh? uh, alcohol, alcoholism, other drugs. And MDMA, the drug in ecstasy, has shown to be particularly valuable in helping people recover from PTSD. Oh, wow. You know, in some cases, people with PTSD will do one round of of this therapy with MDMA, take it one time, Mm -hmm. and their symptoms are are so reduced that they no longer are considered to have PTSD.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. I've never heard that. I know ketamine is also a Special K, which yeah. is a club drug from back in the day. Is also ketamine's being used to treat depression in some situations as well now. I think, uh, and and again, all of these things may <laughs> have some medicinal uses, but you know, on the on the street when you're purchasing them at a at a club, at a rave, right. or you know, from a friend, you don't know what you you're don't know getting. what you're getting. You know, and, you're just, yeah, <laughs>
1: controlled environment and doses are you know yeah mo- monitored, and we know what we're getting. It's a different story.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the other problem with these new drugs, these new psycho these novel psychoactive substances, is that for every known drug that you've heard of, there's a new synthetic version that's being sold as that drug often. So for heroin, you know, heroin is a natural drug that comes from a plant. Now there's fentanyl, which mm-hmm. is synthetic and much more powerful. Mm-hmm um you know same with marijuana a natural drug it's it's a very safe history no Mm -hmm. one's ever overdosed and died from marijuana but now there's the new synthetic version of marijuana
1: right
2: k2 and spice and so it's it's the same way with stuff like lsd too lsd is another drug where no one has ever died from an overdose from from the drug right but there are these new versions of that are of LSD. They don't have anything in common chemically with LSD, but the effects can be similar. The only problem is that these new versions can and do kill people. Yeah. So that's another reason this landscape is so dangerous right now.
0: Well, and I mean, I'm, I'm grateful that I'm in recovery. I've been in recovery for about 10 years and you know, the landscape just over the last 10 years has changed. Uh, you know, being in the industry, I'm watching what's coming through the door and you know, when, uh, when I smoked pot before, uh, that's what we were doing. We were smoking pot. We were smoking marijuana. You know, we were getting the plant, we were getting the flower, you know, maybe we got something that was 25, 30% THC. Uh, and that was really good. And we paid a lot of money for it and it was coveted. Uh, you know, now it's rare. Uh, you know, most of the kids are smoking either the dab or the oil or some tincture or some, some something that has anywhere from eighty to a hundred percent THC value, which is devastating to an adolescent, uh, and and actually has psychoactive, like hallucinogenic effects. Uh, they call weed crack, just kind of boiling it down to its purest form. Oh
2: wow! Yeah, doesn't sound fun. Well, no. you know, I um, I don't want to encourage people to to smoke marijuana, especially like teenagers and people who using it heavily when their brains aren't fully developed, but, Mm -hmm. but, you know, marijuana, if you can see the buds, if you can smell them, Mm -hmm. you know, you can be pretty sure that's not going to be laced with fentanyl there. There isn't that financial incentive for drug dealers to, to put fentanyl on weed. And so, you know, if you have to do it, you know, if you want to do a drug these days, I would say if you can get some real marijuana with the flowers and everything, that's probably your
0: best bet. Well, it's the safest. Well, my understanding is, and Maureen, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was some recent buzz on the uh, internet, maybe in the last few months, where people were putting out this uh, fear uh, campaign uh, yeah. about marijuana being laced <clears throat> with fentanyl. But the the flashpoint for fentanyl is that it burns. Yeah, no, the burn, the burn rate. It. You can't
1: do that. It's not yeah. possible. So, wow,
2: that's a good point. Yeah,
1: it's, yeah. A these, um, <clears throat> it's a lot of these. It's a lot of these misconceptions, and and you know, people trying to. I don't know what it is. It's all part of the stigma of Mm. and and, you know talking about how one one speck of fentanyl in on somebody's shoulder caused them to overdose. I mean things that aren't true, but that's one of them.
2: Yeah, Yeah, that's that's another misconception is that you can overdose just by touching fentanyl, and that's not also not true. You know I think it's so important to get good accurate information out there because if kids you know kids if you lie to them about one thing, they're going to assume you're lying to them about everything. Absolutely.
1: Well, not only that, but I mean, this is the, the fear like that makes people uh, afraid to Narcan somebody afraid to call for help. And so we, we, I think it's really important that we let people know what's true and what's not true about, about, uh, about this. The synthetics terrify me though, because we can't even test for them. So you have, you know, parents and people that are testing their children or or even treatment centers and sober living they're testing to see if um somebody is, is testing positive for for drugs so they can either get them back into treatment or help them in some way and um and there's no way of testing for a lot of these drugs.
2: Yeah. Yeah, there there isn't and um that um the, the drug checking is another really critical part too to to see if what you have is what you think you have, or right. they fentanyl in it, and in that regard, there is um, the technology is evolving pretty fast. Um, in, well, that's, in that's been available. In,
0: that's been available in Europe forever. Uh, the, yeah, the drug test the safety testing.
1: It's so not, important. Not so, so important. much here, though, right?
2: Well, there. Um, I write in the book. I write about this company called Bunk Police, and they mm-hmm. have developed some really um, sophisticated and really inexpensive kits um okay. you know uh, fentanyl testing strips are only like two dollars and they they function kind of like a pregnancy test Yep, it's like a paper strip you dip it in a solution of your drugs and if there's one stripe then it's there's fentanyl if there's two stripes there's not but um but bunk police for example sells these these kits that you can test like for this whole you know hundreds of different drugs and um you know if you've got something um, i i would just suggest testing it right. just to be safe
1: right cuz the reality is people are going to use these drugs so that they, they, they should know what they're using at least and give them right. a give them a fighting chance
2: yeah. yeah the problem is um in places like pennsylvania Fentanyl testing strips are still illegal. They're still banned, oh which is crazy. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: Um, yeah. Although now that, that
1: we're banning, more. right? Well, we have yeah. all this yeah. other stuff going on, and we're worried about the testing strips.
2: Yeah. Right, but now there's a movement to um, to legalize them, and also in uh, Philadelphia is trying to have the country's first. Uh, medication, uh, supervised injection facility, right, where people can legally use drugs. You guys may have talked about that. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it's a bit of a battle. I know that uh, there's, there's both sides of that, you know, why are we giving them a safe place to do it? And then there's they're going to do it anyway, why not give them a safe place to do it so they can stay alive long enough to get the help. And that's, you know, they're again, basing that off of European models, and even Canada, Uh, I think we had a guest on that about Vancouver. Um, And you know, these are These are great ideas to keep people alive. They are reactions. They are responses to an epidemic that nobody has a solution for, Um, you know? And so on a big picture scale, it's like, what do we actually do about it? We react, we respond. We create ways to keep people alive while they're struggling with it. But of course, none of these are solutions to the problem. I mean, we've got a a country full of people who are looking for relief and they're gonna find it one way or another, be it through substances, gambling, eating, working, whatever. Um, It's just that substances are- Easy, well, easy to get.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, for Fentanyl Inc., I went to Barcelona, Spain, and they uh-huh. have um, a bunch of these supervised injection facilities there. And mm. the benefits are twofold. You know, for the the addicted users, it's a spot where they they can go, and there are doctors and nurses present. There are mm-hmm. clean needles. They have access to all this different treatment. They they become part of a community. Yep. They become part of the system. And um, they've never had, you know, someone die at one of these facilities anywhere in the world. But the other benefit is it uh, helps the community at large. And so Barcelona in particular had this problem with discarded syringes, you know, in public parks and places like that. And since they've opened these supervised injection facilities, those, the rates of discarded syringes have dropped way down. There's a much lower rate of HIV in other infectious diseases. And, um, you know, a lot of even police chiefs in Europe have said that these facilities really help them, uh, do their job of reducing crime. Because if, if people are, you know, brought into the system, they're less likely to have to rob and steal and do prostitution, for example, to, uh, pay for their
0: habits now are those the three-tier models the safe injection site downstairs and then they've got like outpatient and then residential so you can kind of as you're showing up on a regular basis you can be integrated into the treatment model there
2: um that might be in vancouver maybe they not they didn't have it at the one i saw in barcelona but i have heard about that yeah
0: i think that is portugal portugal does that too right i think that was in portugal that they okay they've actually implemented, you know, not just the safe injection. site. like their country did it the right way, which was they decriminalized and they declared it a public health emergency and they funneled all their money toward uh, it being a public health issue. So instead of, you know, all the, the, the money going toward uh, like the DEA and, you know, prison industry, it's all going toward the health of it. And so they created these uh, multi-tiered Uh, um, safe injection sites slash treatment programs where people can start at the ground level of hey i'm just here to do my drugs safely to oh well i've seen you here a few weeks now you know do you want to talk about some treatment and so you've got constant contact with these people um, and that you have access to different levels different tiers of treatment if you keep coming
1: yeah that's that's been a huge success out there yep
0: but they did it right. I mean, our country, we'd have to get all 50 states to agree that this is a public health issue and start you know, deferring our funds from the prohibitionary stance of let's keep it out of the country to let's address the issue why it's happening, let's treat the public health side, then let's get safe injection sites everywhere, then let's treat them like people with a health issue. I mean, you know, I, I assume that would take a bit of
1: work.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, the presidential candidate Andrew Yang has talked about uh-huh. decriminalizing opioids, and yeah. that at first I I didn't really know what to make of that. It sounded like a, a bridge too far. But yeah, but I'm beginning to think that the problem is um, just people aren't getting treatment when they're when they're being locked up. And no. this, um, you know, there's been a movement towards medication assisted treatment in in the U.S. in large part. Uh-huh. but you know it's not it can't just be handing out you know suboxone to people and then forgetting about them right. it has to be in combination with you know therapy counseling helping people get their lives together uh-huh. because that's as much about this cycle of addiction as you know the the drugs and their chemical hooks right
0: There was actually a movement uh, roughly 10 years or so ago when I, when I started my company Um, I remember I went to a a Kiwanis meeting and I was joining Kiwanis in my local town and they had this gentleman that was speaking and he was, he was a uh, retired uh, FBI agent and he was part of a large group of um, um, industry professionals, DEA, FBI, uh, folks like that, who had been fighting the, the war on drugs for a long time, and they were collaborating. They were getting together, and they were they were pushing for legalization slash decriminalization of all the drugs, uh, saying that the war that they were fighting was a futile effort. You know, they were basically every time that they put a block in place, the people who wanted it would find a way to go around it. So it was not. It was the you know we were fighting the supply instead of the demand. You know, and since the demand exists, they will always find a way to get it. They'll always find a synthetic or another alternative to it. And we weren't treating the actual problem, which is why do people demand the substances? Why is the United States the number one consumer in the world for all the substances made everywhere else? And I was interesting in the beginning of my recovery. I was like, that's insane. Absolutely not. I couldn't imagine that. But over the last 10 years or so, I've started to be like, hmm, maybe (laughs) Maybe that's better than what we've been doing for however many decades we've been trying.
2: Yeah. Well, that's a big argument in favor of uh, decriminalization uh, and legalization is that the the drug cartels, you know, in, in Mexico, it's gotten to up to something like 30,000 murders a year. Wow. And you're basically, by keeping these drugs illegal, um, you're enriching the cartels. There's no other real way to look at it. and mm-hmm it's not just people in the U.S. who are dying from drug overdoses, it's people who are dying in other countries because of the illegal drug trade. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, one of my big messages in the book is that the the war on drugs has been, you know, floundering for decades. And the, the DEL, DEA helped kill Pablo Escobar. Mm-hmm. And this was supposed to make a dent in the Colombian cocaine trade. But nowadays, colombia sends more cocaine out to the world than it ever did previously yeah um you know el chapo was locked up and tried and that hasn't done anything to slow the drugs the drug trade from mexico right and um now you know the the china issue is one that's starting to consume people but um if, if even if we can tamp down on china and get them to control their drug trade the industry will likely just migrate to a place like India, yep. where it's all, fentanyl production is already starting to happen.
0: So. Well, Afghanistan was the, the heroin, the heroin import. You know, I mean, that, that's the thing is, I guess, if you look at we have a demand, that's the issue. We have a demand for it. There are people who want it and people who need it. And it doesn't matter where the supply comes from. I mean, it's it, they will shut down one chemical, another chemical will come up. It's that pursuit of relief. That pursuit of um, you know self soothing in the form of a pill or a powder or whatever it might be, and I guess that's that's the battle that we're up against. I mean, Maureen and I are both working in this industry, you know, with a variety of different people coming through, and they all have that demand. Might be different substances, but they all have that demand. And uh, the you know you look at prohibition back in what was it the 20s with with alcohol. I mean, that was the mob was born, right? The uh, uh, what they call it, the moonshiners. Who are the ones yeah. that, yeah, they, they would just, you know, drive around. And I mean, they're making alcohol in the woods, <laughs> you know, in these stills. And it was like, okay, we can't have it. Well, we still want it. So we're just going to make it and find another way to do it. And you just made other people rich.
2: Yeah. And another thing, um, people like uh, Mitchell Gomez and Emmanuel Saferios, who both worked with Dance Safe, another argument uh, in favor of decriminalization and legalization is that during these prohibitionary times, um, like, like the prohibition of alcohol, they, it becomes more efficient and cost effective to make these, to make the drugs in more potent. So people didn't want to be, you know, the, the mob didn't want to be ship shipping around all these giant containers of beer. They instead were making moonshine and other hard liquor in bathtubs yeah. and things like that is much more dangerous. And now yeah. we're seeing the same thing in the synthetics era. Um, the the Mexican cartels are switching over from heroin to fentanyl mm-hmm. as fast as they can because it's so much easier to uh, distribute it up through the U.S. border because it's such, you know, 50 kilos of heroin is equivalent to just one kilo of fentanyl. Right. So it's so much easier to distribute
0: well, if you think about this right here's some funny numbers that people really don't consider is that you know we're talking about drugs that are killing people all over the place you know we're killing, we're talking about fentanyl heroin crack crystal meth stuff like that but if you consider it the two substances that actually kill more people every year are cigarettes and alcohol cigarettes matter of fact kill more people than alcohol and drugs combined and alcohol kills more people than all other drugs combined not including cigarettes they're both legal they're both regulated and I can tell you right now that if I went to try to buy alcohol or cigarettes off my friends, they would just be like, we'll just go to the store. Like there's nobody out there bootlegging it. There's nobody out there yeah. selling it in that capacity. So there's a, it doesn't stop people from using it, but it did regulate the market and it did stop the, you know, the underground sale and the young entrepreneurs. Like I don't know any high school kids that are going around buying cartons of cigarettes and selling them in the uh-huh. back.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean this the cigarettes seems like a an example of a public health story that had a happy ending. Right. You know, they they everybody knows that if you outlaw cigarettes you're just going to enable this black market trade, but by taxing it at the appropriate level and mm-hmm. using profits from cigarettes to help defer health costs um, there's, we've been able to drive down the rate of cigarette usage. Yeah. Well, at the same time, um, having funding for, for care related to it. So, uh, it seems like there should be that happy medium when it comes to, to other drugs too.
0: It's just a hard pill to swallow. It's a hard pill for people. It's even hard for me. I'm here talking about it. It might even sound like I am pro legalization or decriminalization. It's just, I'm confused. I don't know yeah. what the solution is. I just know that uh you know 50 years of what we've been doing hasn't helped (laughs) you know like generationally you'd think that oh we should be weeding this out by now we killed this guy we captured that guy we blocked this path we blocked that path I mean aside from just putting a bubble over the United States and being like all right we don't import anything anymore someone will tunnel out (laughs) (laughs) you know somebody will create a way so it's just I'm confused
1: yeah, so, but, and it is confusing. There's oh, Maureen, did you did you want to? No, say- I was just going to say, knowing everything that you know now, I mean, you've you have a tremendous amount of knowledge on on this subject. What do you think we should change? What what should be a couple of first steps at least? Things that we're not doing now.
2: Yeah, well, there are some pretty obvious first steps in the U. S. For example, we have to legalize fentanyl testing strips. I, I you know, can't all over that. the country. That's yeah. that's a no-brainer. Uh-huh. We have to um, get rid of things like the Rave Act, which is this piece of kind of obscure legislation that makes it illegal, basically, for concert promoters and rave promoters to allow drug checking on site. Wow! It's, it's tantamount to admitting they know drug use is taking place on the premises. It's it's ridiculous. Um, we need better access and funding for medication assisted treatment, more Narcan availability. You know, we should, Narcan should be available to everybody mm-hmm. who needs it. Um, there's a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate for, for supervised injection facilities and, even though this one in Philadelphia, you know, the courts have ruled in its favor, but there still are none that are operating legally in the U.S. Right. I'm not saying that, you know, supervised injection facilities are a panacea. You know, you've heard about in Vancouver where they have a number of them and fentanyl death rates are actually still rising there. Yeah. And so the, these facilities are controversial even in Vancouver. But again, it comes down to just what what you were saying that. um we've been doing it the wrong way for so long. We might as well try something else.
0: Yeah, so. It's it's hard. I mean, I, I think that, you know, you look at Narcan just all in itself. I mean, we got AEDs all over the place. Somebody has a, a heart attack or somebody goes out. I, I just recently did the first aid CPR. That's why this popped in my head. You know, they're like, there's actually an app that I can go on and I can find my local AED. I can just click it and it will pull up my location and tell me where there's an AED somewhere so that I can save someone's life and you know i mean a simple thing would be every aed should also have a narcan kit you know like that you know you can find one or that people should carry them an obvious solution but an obvious it's just a reaction these are all responses to an epidemic that we don't have a solution to and you know i mean every guest that we have on we always ask you know if you could change something what would you change and we get a lot of answers but it's always that the thing we have to change is so big it might not change yeah, that's the scariest part of the answers that at least in me, the consensus I'm getting is that the the answers seem so big that it's like, who could do it? You know, is the government going to step in and do it for us? Can they save us? Um, or do we as a community have to start speaking up and publicly saying, like, our country is dying
2: <laughs> what yeah. do we do differently? Well, I think, you know, forums like this are the first step, because when it comes to new drugs like fentanyl, there really is an education gap. Yeah, you know, at least with drugs like heroin and crack and meth, those people are who take it are intending to take those drugs. You know, fentanyl, a lot of people still haven't even heard of, and a lot of people who overdose and die aren't even don't even know they were taking fentanyl. Right,
1: right, that's very true. So,
2: you
0: know, it's it's we have testing here in Massachusetts, and it's still not even CLA waived. Um, Like it's if you we have test cups that test for fentanyl now. But it's not admissible. Like it's, you, you can't actually use it as a as a, a, a legal result on a test now. Oh, uh, we can still test for it, but you just can't use it for anything. Um, I just think that's weird. I don't know. I mean, we got we got. I'm actually seeing more people who are buying fentanyl intentionally now over the last yeah. two years, where they're buying it because it's cheaper, it's more potent, um, and it doesn't show up in a lot of the tests that it show. And even when it does, it's out faster can be out of your system in eight to 12 hours and it's no longer showing up in a test.
2: Oh wow. Uh, I didn't know it was that fast.
0: Yeah. We have uh, you know, we have a men's sober living and we have to, if we suspect someone, of fentanyl, we have to get on top of it really fast um, because we won't, you know, 24 hours later, it could be out of their system as far as the test that we have. And even then it's, you know, it's just crazy that they're, they're buying it intentionally now.
2: Yeah. Well in St. Louis too, uh, where I live, fentanyl is being sold as fentanyl and in places like um san francisco and then i was talking to some guys in vancouver they were saying the stuff being sold on the street is almost exclusively fentanyl that no one's even offering heroin anymore yeah
0: heroin's old school yeah i
1: think that's fairly true here in the northeast in in massachusetts It's, it's almost all fentanyl now i don't think that there's any there's a whole lot of heroin here
0: which just okay. speaks to the need for the product. Again, the demand. Now the demand is there. It was the demand from the right. dealers to, you know, to, to, to manipulate the customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and now the demand is from the customer and the dealers have no choice because the dealers who would sell heroin are now getting asked for fentanyl. Well,
2: yeah, it's say? like an arms race, you know. Yeah. That with uh, with heroin, a lot of addicted users they don't get high anymore. They just you know get eased off their withdrawal symptoms. But yeah. fentanyl will will get people high again. And then once you're used to a fentanyl high, there's yeah. no going back.
0: Right. Yeah. The evolution of substance use is just disgusting. Um, you know, watching it from the sidelines and watching the people that are struggling with it. I mean, Maureen, you you see this all day too. I mean, yeah. it's devastating to the families. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the families who you know, they don't understand this product either. They don't understand why it's so available. Um, You know, why their loved ones are doing it. It's just such a confusing illness. And, you know, I I think uh, you wrote, you wrote some stuff in your book about, you know, some of the things that you think should change and those harm reduction models, you know, the MAT. That's another confusing thing for people um, that we were talking about Portugal and there was a documentary on HBO. And I think that's where I learned most of what I learned about that. I haven't actually been to Portugal, but, Uh, in watching that there was this one gentleman and he stuck out to me where they interviewed him and he was a a heroin user uh, and he was an older gentleman probably in his late 40s 50s and they asked him about his response to the uh, safe injection site slash treatment center that was there and his comment kind of surprised me he said you know I feel like they've just forgotten about me um, because he was being prescribed a medication and, and because he was no longer a A threat to the community. There was no interaction with people. They just sort of, he just went and got his daily dose of heroin because they use HAT over there, not MAT. He just got his daily dose of heroin and then he went about his business. And he's like, I feel like people are just happy that I'm not committing crimes anymore. Like there was no intention to help him. And I feel like here in the States, we get a lot of that too, where people are maybe put on MAT, like you were saying earlier, and there's no additional treatment to address the issue. It's just, okay, now you're stable. Now yeah. you're a stable suffering addict. Good luck. Instead of, okay, now that you're stable, let's, let's do more. Let's treat the illness about what got you here in the first place. And that's confusing for families because they see the the lack of chaos and they're like, Oh, this is progress. Well, it's just yeah. the first step. There's gotta be more.
2: Yeah. And, well, my my wife, for example, is, is really big into, you know, abstinence based treatment and yeah. you know, it it is, it's controversial, but, you know, for a lot of people, a spiritual-based recovery is can be really effective. And there's mm-hmm. even, like, uh, there's academic literature that shows this. And if you're, um, you know, if there's a cause that's bigger than yourself, yep. it, it you know, can really help people get through it.
0: Well, that's what I went through was the steps. That's um, absence-based, and so is our house, and so are most of my colleagues. But... It's still, you know, I was absent in space before fentanyl. You know, I was absent right. before, um, you know, Suboxone was such a huge thing. And you know, I know methadone's been around forever, but it was uh, it was the only one for me. I tried everything to quit except quitting. Um, <laughs> what so what did I read did the other? Worked.
1: I read the other day. Um, if you watch your child, watching your child go through a um, through a heroin addiction or a drug addiction the the question will change from how do i make them stop to how do i keep them alive i mean and and people can't get well unless they stay breathing right so i think whatever works Mm -hmm. whatever works for the person i mean i'm a big you know big fan of uh vivitrol because um there's no opioid in it you know and i think that's the perfect combination is to try to to keep, to stave off that while you work on yourself. But that's the whole problem is people are not, you know, continuing like that 12 step program and that for a little while until you can stop. Uh, That would be awesome or therapy or whatever, but you have to get at the root of why, why this started to begin with. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I will ask you the same question that we ask everybody, Ben. Um, you know, I know that you offered up a couple of things that, that you think we could change, but is there anything new that you think we could introduce to the situation that might help address this uh the epidemic that our country's facing?
2: Well, I think, you know, we talked about decriminalization and also um, you know, maybe mandatory treatment as an alternative to putting people in jail. And yeah. I think the the recidivism rate is such a big problem, and uh, know a lot of people here in St. Louis who have gone into jail or prison with drug problems, and then you know they get out, and it's as if they were never gone. The the wow. problem resurfaces almost immediately, and so again, this is not to say that I believe this will be a panacea, but um, Treating it like, like a problem, like a disease, um, seems like it, it's worth a try at the very least. So.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, treating it like the illness that it is instead of, you know, a crime uh, is, is huge. I mean, we got an overcrowded prison system, a privatized prison industry uh, full of people who absolutely need treatment, not punishment. So
2: and yeah, and there's there's very little of these opioid blockers or, you know, suboxone or methadone or whatever in prison, Mm -hmm. but people can still get drugs in prison. Oftentimes people can't even dry out in that environment.
0: Right. Well, I would love to give you an opportunity. Uh, you have a bunch of books out there. and I'd love uh, for our listeners and, and uh, viewers to get a chance to check them out. So Fentanyl, Inc. is the, the most recent book uh, that's come out. I believe you're going to have a new book coming out soon as well, right? Oh, Not no, no. Topic,
2: that, but- that one I've just sort of started writing. But, oh, okay. All right. But yeah, no, Fentanyl, Inc., How Rogue Chemists Are Creating the Deadliest Wave of the Opioid Epidemic. Okay. That has my, you know, infiltration of the Chinese drug labs. and. Yeah. The History of Fentanyl and Novel Psychoactive Substances. Um, That just came out a few months ago. And And that's available um, everywhere,
0: right? Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookstores. It's
1: it's like been winning best book of 2019 and all kinds of great reviews. And I just think that everybody should read this because people have no idea what's really what's going on behind the scenes with all these synthetics and with fentanyl. And I think this book is just packed full of information that people need to know.
2: Agreed. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I also have two books about hip hop music. Uh, One is about Southern rap called Dirty South. And the Mm -hmm. other is uh, about NWA and Tupac. It's called Original Gangsters. Okay. Basically like the true story behind the Straight Outta Compton movie. But yeah, you know, the subject matters are different. But at heart, I'm, you know, an investigative reporter. So I kind of treat treat, and, and with the focus on like storytelling and narrative and personal stories and so you know these these rappers I wrote about you know I got to interview Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg oh, wow. and Ice Cube and all them and their, their stories are just so compelling what they went through and um that's interesting ultimately yeah it's these human stories that I try to tell in my books
1: so you, you were the music critic a critic at the LA Times
2: at the LA Weekly yeah. LA Weekly
1: what do you listen to now
2: what do I listen to now? Um, I really like the new Lana Del Rey album.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. I haven't heard that yet. I like her.
2: Yeah, it, it's really good. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I still like the, the old school hip hop. Oh, the yeah. Stuff you go, I feel like the stuff you listen to in high school is the stuff that sticks with you the rest of your life. Often.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Can I ask you a question about the Dirty South one? Um, just because of the, the, the topic that we're into here. Uh, did Lean come into that at all?
2: Uh, yeah absolutely yeah. um that's um also known as scissor it's basically yeah. uh promethazine codeine cough syrup and it's usually mixed within like a two liter soda bottle yeah and it's has been especially popular in houston Yeah, and um really influenced the hip-hop scene coming out of there um and there's there's rappers like um like uh UGK, a rap duo, and one of their members, Pimp C, mm-hmm. uh, died actually from from drinking lean. And yeah. it's you know, the sound there in Houston, it's really slow. It's Twisted and screwed, right? There. Yeah, the chopped and screwed exactly. Chopped and screwed, yeah, that's it. Yeah, and that's heavily influenced by um by lean.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and that's actually become, that's come out here too, you know, out to the, the East Coast and, uh, you know, that younger generation of, um, of new new rappers, everybody, you know, is, is they're rapping about lean, they're talking about lean and it's become a lot more mainstream. And now the kids are mixing the uh, lean and Adderall and, um, you know, lean and Xanax and just putting it in Sprite bottles, shaking it up and going about yeah. that.
2: It's really dangerous, I mean uh lean is an opioid too, right, and yep. um especially when you're mixing it with something like xanax a benzodiazepine, mm-hmm. that's the one of the most fatal combinations you can have. They both slow right. your heart rate way down, and well it's a sneaky
0: it's a sneaky opiate addiction that's the one is the 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 lean it's it's just you sip it, you sip it throughout the day, and it's the sneaky opiate addiction that you don't even realize you have because it's not you're not doing heroin, you know you're not um you're not buying it the same way or using it the same way it's heroin almost
2: right yeah you know in hip-hop um there's been a big glamorization of drugs like um, xanax and these different pills and Mm -hmm. you know no no rapper would ever admit to shooting heroin right and you know they don't talk about fentanyl but um the glamor is glamorization of the The prescription pain pills is something that i i don't think it's cool at all and i don't think rappers should be doing it
0: no no and unfortunately a lot of the younger kids idolize these ones um you know lil peep um and yeah. uh you know even one of them's named after it like lil zan lil yeah. I mean, yeah you know that that uh i mean one of his songs was betrayed which is about how the drugs betrayed him but you know just that that generation that culture they're they're talking about it they're singing about it. it's just commonplace but i'm just i was curious if that came up in your investigation because that was where it's born down in houston the dirty south and it's crept its way up here and it's crept its way into uh mainstream music and media and television so yeah
2: yeah, yeah. absolutely it's uh it's a, a really uh a, a great hip-hop scene down there in houston and and also wrote about like new orleans the cash yeah. money uh, yeah. no limit yeah. and in atlanta outcast and yeah okay and i love outcast so Outcast fun. Is, yeah
0: yeah andre 3000 is amazing big boy is too but good uh he made good some group of
2: his best music while he was a drug-free vegan so
0: <laughs> <laughs> isn't that amazing so you don't need drugs to be creative kids <laughs> um well listen, I, I really want to thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. This was this was really interesting. And I know our listeners got a lot out of this because again, they're just such an uninformed group uh sometimes when it comes to things like synthetics and fentanyl and what's actually happening to our country and our kids. So yeah. Thank you for taking the time to join us. I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, and, thank you so much.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you, uh Michael and Maureen. It's been a pleasure.
0: Absolutely. And so we're gonna make sure that uh, we have links to all these things in the show notes as well. Um and uh hopefully Uh, Maybe we'll have you back on at some other point when you've got another another book out.
2: (laughs) Okay, well, thank you. I'd love to do it. Excellent. Well, thank you very much,
0: Ben.